wonderful Easter Sunday. If you've got your Bibles with you, please open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is a great passage for us to dwell upon at Easter. And uh, we're going to read a lot of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 8, 12 to 18, verse 32, and verses 51 to 58. And it'll make sense why, because this is a great passage all about the resurrection of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, be it on an app or on, uh, on paper uh, or any other version, then please read along with me. Um, I will be reading it as well from the NIV. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Verse 12, but if Christ is preached, sorry, but if, if it is pre preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Verse 32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes... What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For that trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where a death is your victory, where a death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour 
in the Lord is not in vain. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which so clearly outlines the blessings that are in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do celebrate this as the greatest news ever, that death has been disarmed. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now from your word in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, this week we've been asking, what is some good news? What is the best news ever? Ever? We often ask, what's the worst that could happen, don't we? Oh, what's the worst that could happen? How many times have you said those words? Oh, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, give it a go, right? <clears throat> but what about asking, what's the best possible news you could receive today? I'm quite confident that I've already spoken a lot about it. And uh, it's astonishingly big, something that is truly life-changing. See, many of us have some sort of view of life that shapes our lives. And so I want to map out the shape that many people think life takes. The assumption is that we pop out of nowhere. We have a bit of life for a while, and then we decline back down to death and return to die in nothingness and it's over. This view is very pervasive in our culture. You know, I remember as a child, I would often go, um, because we lived interstate from all of our family, um, I'd often go Easter times, Christmas times, school holidays, we'd often travel back to see my grandparents. I have one set that used to <coughs> live in Melbourne and my nan, uh, Smith, she used to live in Geelong <clears throat> and we often spent a lot more time with my nan Smith because uh, it just seemed to be so much nicer there for some reason. Um, I don't know why but she was just very cuddly. Um, I likened her to my grandma Yoda because she didn't look too dissimilar. Um, she was short, naturally never got high, uh, was always quite short and as a kid growing up it was a major milestone when you pass the height of an adult. Well, Nan was the first person that I passed in height. And so what I used to think though, and I formed this view during my childhood, probably because of these trips, that every time I returned and saw Nan, she was shrinking. And yes, I was growing too, but she was also shrinking. And that was true in her age, she was actually shrinking. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else has experienced that shrinking factor um, uh, and what I came to the inclusion was that you were born as a baby you grew up became an adult and then you started shrinking and returned to a baby and before you died again right that was my child view and that's not too dissimilar actually to the major worldview that is in our society today that you die, that you are born, come out of nothingness, that you have some life, and then you return to death and nothingness. Um, now, it might not be as, as quite pronounced as my childhood version of it, uh, but that is what forms most of our, our culture's understanding of life and death. And <clears throat> we have a, a, other things that help explain this sort of um, view. Have you heard the, the, the phrase YOLO? Did I say that right? Any young people? YOLO, you only live once. YOLO. Or what about FOMO? 
fear of missing out. We've all come across those, those terms. You know, this is sort of our culture expressing itself in this, you know, nothingness, life, and then nothingness again. We don't want to miss out. We only live once, so, so we want to make sure that we have all the best experiences. And what these are describing is a driving force in our culture. It's a culture of hedonism and consumerism that is essentially eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The whole thing is driven by death. It's dominated by the baseline of that graph, which is the big zero. The assumption in this worldview is that zero ultimately wins. Nothing, nothingness is the ultimate lasting truth. Life is a temporary exception for a brief moment, but it runs out and back to nothing. One day the sun will run out of gas, the lights will go out and everything will die. People think death wins, death rules. And so it shapes and dominates their lives and they map it out like this curve. The technical name for this worldview, I'm sure you're really interested in this, the technical name is nihilism. It ultimately claims that everything is ultimately meaningless and pointless and is there any wonder that its rise coincides with mental illness, violence, hopelessness, apathy and the like. It needs to be seen for what it is. And I'm sure that you know people who have ascribed to this nihilistic worldview but probably aren't even aware that they have because it's so pervasive that for most people in our world it's not even a conscious choice but rather that's the current of our world. But Jesus lived a different path. He taught it openly and he lived it. It looks like this. He didn't pop out of nowhere, but he came from God. And he taught us that we too are not primal accidents, but we are created. He didn't scramble upwards to try to maximise his life experiences and have as much fun as possible. There's a poem that Paul writes in Philippians 2 that describes his trajectory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father do you see how his curve is quite the opposite? What a contrast. He pointed himself downward. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
and God raised him upward. It's not only the way he lived, it was also the way he taught. There's so many times he said, those who exalt themselves, who exalt themselves, will be humbled. Yet those who humble themselves will be exalted. In our world full of social media influences, is it any wonder they've got it so wrong? A few weeks ago, I read an article about these two um, young social media influencers who were on holidays in a very trendy place. And before they went on holidays, they messaged all of these fancy restaurants to say, we'd like to partner with you to um, come and, and try and give an honest review um, to our thousands of followers on, on, on Instagram. Of course, what they're after was a free meal. And the, uh, the exposure the business could get, they really you know, glammed it up like, oh, it's going to be amazing. These thousands of people that follow us on, on Instagram are going to see you know, us talking about your restaurant, so it'll be very valuable to you. Well, the, the article I was reading rightly called them out and said it was deplorable behaviour, basically trying to get a free meal. They were ruthless self-promoters looking for a free ride. And they were denounced for that. But this is what, in our culture, people seem to aspire to. Fame and fortune, they think, are ultimately linked together. And so, if I get famous, even insta-famous, then the fortune should follow. And so, you have a whole bunch of people who are just in this staggering loop. And, and, and it seems to be something that is given to aspire to by our culture. People famous for being famous. That, that's so bizarre. Funded for flaunting. That's just weird. And it's full of falsehood flattering. It's all fake. Have you seen some of those filters on those apps? It is fake as fake as fake. Do not believe what you see on social media. But this is the tidal wave of self-promotion that is, exists in our culture, in this nihilistic culture, and can you see how the message of Jesus, a message of humility, is the greatest news ever? I mean, let's just contrast and compare for a moment. The foundation of it all is that there is a power more powerful than death and darkness and nothingness. A loving and creative and living God who does not run out of gas, but gives life and offers eternal life. Compare and contrast the kind of society that is formed by these two opposing, diametrically opposed worldviews. The first one creates a culture where we see each other as competitors or threats or, or stepping stones to be climbed over as we uh, each try to maximise our brief time in the sun. Have you ever worked in a competitive environment when there's a promotion up for grabs and they're looking at your pool of, of employees to find that person to promote from? Anyone been in one of those environments? I have a few times and uh, it, 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 it creates a, a crazy environment where 
once a cooperative and harmonious team of co-workers are now competitors for more money and for seniority and once peaceful co-workers now become threats and people to be climbed over to get the prize. But Jesus' way creates a community of people determined to serve one another and sacrifice for one another and put others before oneself. That cooperation and harmony bring a flourishing even in our broken world, all with expectation and anticipation of something better and more lasting to come. That's why Paul, in his great chapter on resurrection, which I read a lot of earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, winds up taunting, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because suffering and death are not ultimate. Like Jesus, we may need to suffer through, but it is not our destination. And I'm sure that there are some people at the moment who are suffering. I know that, that that is true. There are people who are suffering with straining relationships with family and friends. There are people who are suffering with their health. There are people who are suffering just with, with life at the moment. It's so hard for some of you. And can I say, take heart. You know, those burdens that we are carrying right now, Jesus says, give them to me, let me take them and I will give you rest. You know, those, those moments of burden are so hard. When we are so low and we just cry out, those are the moments where Jesus steps in and reminds us that is something that we have that that we'll get through it is not our destination suffering is not our destination they are not evil suffering and death are not the ultimate power we don't merely have to come to terms with them we are indeed rightly appalled by them and we may need to suffer through them but they don't have the last say. Christ has triumphed and has made a way for us. And you know what? That is mind-blowingly good news. It is great news. You have to get your head around the fact that this is a whole new way of seeing things. But it begs two questions. The first question is, is it true? Is this life curve of Jesus really true? Is what he said true? You know, it's only good news as opposed to wishful thinking if it has historical and scientific credibility. If death can be shown to really have been overcome. That's why Paul starts his great chapter with historical facts. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance is the 500 witnesses most of them who were still alive. What he's saying to his readers is, you can go and ask first-hand accounts of over 500 people who testify to the truth. 
Now, I'm not sure if you've watched many shows like I have on, on TV about, you know, crime and, and crime dramas and, you know, trying to work out who did what and everything. What's one thing that they always value the most as an investigator? First-hand witness testimony. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He's saying there are over 500 people, most of them who are still alive, where you can go and get that first-hand testimony. You can hear for yourself. It's not third-hand or fourth-hand. It's not passed down from generation to generation like Chinese whispers. You can go and speak to someone. You can go and find the source yourself. Now, that's, that's, that's what evidence is. That's what our courts still take as credible evidence, is witness testimony. And so... Paul says, go ask them for yourself. Many went on to give their own lives rather than deny what they had seen. Now, if it was all a lie, then do you think that Jesus' disciples would have met the ends that they met for a lie? If Jesus didn't truly raise, be raised from the dead, you know, do you think that they would have met their ends happily? Do you know how all of the disciples met their ends? I want to share that with you now, if you are not aware. Andrew, the brother of Peter, died as a martyr. He was crucified by being bound to an X-shaped cross. He hung there alive for two days, telling everybody the truth of Jesus to anyone who would watch him die. Now, would you do that for a lie? What about Bartholomew? He was skinned alive and crucified, head downward near Turkey after having preached the gospel in Iraq, Iran, Ethiopia and India. But James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, was beheaded or stabbed with a sword by Herod Agrippa in around 44 AD. James, the son of Alphaeus, was martyred in his early 90s by being thrown from a pinnacle of the temple at Jerusalem and then not only was he thrown from the top of a building, he was then stoned and his head bashed with a club. Would you do that if it was a lie? John, the son of Zebedee and brother of James, was the only one to die of natural causes when he was a hundred years. But he spent many years in exile on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote his gospel and where he wrote the book of Revelation and the other books. What about Jude? Jude was martyred by being beaten with a club and then crucified while on a missionary trip to Persia or Iran. Judas, of course, hung himself after betraying Jesus. Matthew was martyred about 60 AD by being staked and speared to the ground. Simon Peter died by crucifixion at Rome by Nero. He was crucified around 68 AD upside down at his request because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Philip is said to have been tortured, impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die. Simon the Zealot was martyred by crucifixion in Britain in 74 AD and then sawn in half. Thomas or Didymus was martyred as well. He was thrust through by a spear in India. Mark was dragged to death. Luke was hung on an olive tree. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by Nero at Rome. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown some 30-plus metres off a wall. 
He survived the fall and was then beaten to death with clubs. Talk about credibility. And Paul says, if it's not true, disregard everything else I say. And so we have personal eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people who are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ walking amongst them. And none of the disciples ever recanted their story. All of them suffered for it. All but one died because of their testimony. You wouldn't do that if it wasn't true. Now the other question is simply this. How do you get off the death curve and onto the life curve? Well, Jesus invites all, indeed gave his life for it, and so it's yours if you want it. To attach your life to him, he gave a simple ceremony, baptism, which even acts out that curve down then up into new life full of love, joy, meaning and expectation. And you can also pray and accept Jesus' invitation. And then we would certainly encourage you to to declare that in front of your friends and family that you have attached your life to him and that you have chosen to walk in a new life full of love, joy, meaning, expectation and purpose. So those are the two questions for you to ponder today. Is it true? Well, the resounding answer is yes, given the weight of evidence. And secondly, how do I get off the death curve and onto the life curve? Well, that's pretty simple too. It's by accepting the invitation of Jesus. And if you haven't yet accepted that invitation, will you today? If you have not accepted that free invitation, then why not do it today? You know, we're going to sing in a moment a song that is full of hope. It is living hope. We, it is a living and alive hope because Jesus Christ is living and alive. And so... He makes that offer to each one of us. Zero does not win. Zero is not the ultimate, but life, eternal life, real life is available in him. And so may I encourage you, if you have yet to accept that invitation of Jesus, then do that today. Don't wait. And if you do want to accept that today, you know, we're all friends here. There might be new faces, but we're all friends. And so we would like to celebrate with anyone who wants to make that decision for the first time today. So if that is you, I know this is putting you way outside your comfort zone, but if you want to accept the invitation of Jesus for the first time today, then just raise your hand. And you might not want to do that today so publicly, but if it's something that you've done internally in your heart, then come and have a chat with me afterwards because I'd like to encourage you as you accept Jesus' invitation for life, eternal life forever. That's what eternal life means, forever. Life forever with him. So let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus,
Oh, we are so thankful for your sacrifice. But Lord, we are more thankful even still for your victory over death and your resurrection on Sunday, that first Easter Sunday. Lord, we thank you for the amazing circumstances which came to be in that moment. Lord, we are thankful when the tomb, when that stone was rolled away with the earthquake, with the testimony of the guards that saw that and fainted. Lord, we are enthralled by the hope that is found in you. Lord, we, we think of all those passages in scripture that were read, uh, that, that we can read where they recount the story of your resurrection. The two Marys who went and saw the empty tomb. Peter who rushed to see. Those who returned. And Jesus, the way that you, you appeared to so many afterwards. Lord, we are so thankful that we serve a risen saviour, that the hope we have in you is not in a God that is dead and defeated, but one that is in new life. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And so, Lord, may we stand firm. May nothing move us. And may we continue to labour for you and for your, the hope of the gospel because, Lord, we know that our labour for you is not in vain. We give thank you, thanks to you for your sacrifice, for your life, for your resurrection and for your gift of the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us as our guide and as our helper. Lord, we are so thankful that we have life. May we continue to humble ourselves and particularly humble ourselves before you. And we do look forward to resurrection and to new life in you in the future to come. Amen. Well, let's, uh, as I said, let's stand and sing.